Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of severed fingers. Oh my. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling. And today I think we have a pretty fun topic. We're talking about the Yakuza, which is essentially organized crime syndicates in Japan. Uh, The closest comparison we have in the U.S. is probably the Italian mafia. I've seen that comparison made a lot. Although we're going to dig into, you know... The ways that those groups are a little different. Paul, did you have fun researching this one? Yeah, it was it was one of the more fun ones. There was definitely some historical stuff that I didn't know. Yeah. Like there's there's tie-ins to like major world events that the Yakuza were behind the scenes, uh, and sometimes not so behind the scenes involved in. Yeah, I was really interested. I mean, I've been interested in the Yakuza for a long time just because I don't know, there's something fascinating about organized crime, you know, all this stuff happening in the shadows. And uh, I've been doing a lot of research uh, playing those Yakuza video games. I just started Yakuza 6 recently, actually. Research. Hey. 80 hours of playing Yakuza. Research. In the loading screens, they have little facts, like actual real facts that pop up. I think that counts. (laughs) And actually, you know, the uh, like there are parts of those games that are actually... I'm not going to say 100% educational, but they're actually like accurate and uh, you could pick up some some details about the Yakuza in there, especially like the organization, like they're always all these different characters and when it introduces them, it tells like how they tie into the the family, the organization. I mean, the meat of those games isn't the fighting. Like, yeah, you're running around beating people up in the streets and stuff, but really the meat of it is the story, which is all about the politics of the Yakuza, you know? That's kind of one of the things that I think makes the Yakuza really interesting to the general population is just there are all these things going on behind the scenes that nobody knows about, and so they pop up a lot in different types of media that try to open the curtain on that world and kind of show you what life might be like on the other side, you know? Yeah, I think the public's always drawn to like secret society and that's kind of in a way what the yakuza is like Mm -hmm. they've got all these codes and rules and hierarchies but only they really know what's exactly going on and that that makes them kind of fascinating in a way totally there's also this type of like robin hood ideal in japan where the yakuza themselves like to frame themselves as robin hood type figures like yes we're criminals but we're not really the bad guys here. Totally. And that's one of the things that always really grabbed my attention is like, they do a lot of PR basically to yeah, try to make yeah. themselves look good in the eyes of uh, the general population. For example, when natural disasters occur, it's often the Yakuza who are the first to show up with aid. Like after the 2011 earthquake, you know, they would show up with water and that's blankets true. and all that. And that's great. But then you get the flip side where I saw there were rumors that they're shaking down local businesses to get a better deal on that water, which maybe isn't even a bad thing. I don't know if I'm even upset about that. But then I also heard there were some instances, I think in the 90s after an earthquake, where they pressured the citizens that they gave help to to write character letters for them so that they could like get government contracts or something later on. Yeah, I saw that too. Which seems very odd, but... Yeah, so it seems like it's mostly PR. They're trying to make themselves look good, but they're also, like, they're really just in it for their own benefit. The whole point is to make money. 
Yeah. They're trying to make money. Mm-hmm. There's also diversity within the Yakuza. Like, there are Yakuza that have killed people, but that's not most of them, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, there's totally varying degrees of who does what. Mm-hmm. But I read a lot about this Robin Hood dynamic. But then when I was reading about, like, okay, what crimes do the Yakuza actually do, which we'll get to later, there's a lot of horrific stuff on there. Mm-hmm. Like, there's some bad stuff going on that right. the Yakuza are involved in. But like you said, with that diversity, there are a lot of them that kind of just consider themselves businessmen. And I saw a lot of different places describing at least some of the Yakuza as, like, semi-legitimate businessmen. Like, they, they run businesses, but they kind of do it in a shady way and they kind of do whatever they feel is necessary to get what they want, you know? Yeah, true, true. I mean, running a business is one of the best ways to be shady. There's only so many rules governing how you can do business. You can kind of stretch that pretty far sometimes to get away with things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Back to the PR thing for a second. One thing that I heard of like years ago that kind of blew my mind was that the Yakuza would hand out Halloween candy to kids in front of their headquarters. (laughs) And like, I mean, every part of that just is crazy. Like, one is that the Yakuza is handing out candy, like, in costume and stuff, and that's just funny to imagine. But then also the fact that their headquarters are, like, public knowledge. You know, they're not operating in some secret hidden base or something. They're just out on the street and everybody knows like, oh yeah, that's the Yakuza headquarters. Yeah, they'd literally have their flag above the door and they'd all wear a little pin that had their insignia on it, mm-hmm. which isn't necessarily the case anymore. But we'll get into that too, right, I think. Right. And, you know, another interesting thing is that some people even attribute Japan's low crime rate to the existence of the Yakuza. I saw that too. I guess maybe a little dubious, but... I think the argument is that the Yakuza control their territory and they don't let other criminal organizations onto their turf. So right. in that way, they're preventing other crime. And they're visible. Like the police know who they are. They know where they are. I read that like sometimes police would get a cup of coffee with like a Yakuza boss and just, I mean, not so much anymore as we'll get into, but back in the day, it reminded me of the, of the Sopranos. There were episodes where uh, the detectives would hang out with the mafia guys and it's like they have an understanding like we both know what's going on here but we can both benefit from kind of discussing the situation and sharing information yeah i'm dubious about that too well yeah i know what happens right yeah because i have uh, also had less uh legitimate ties yeah i feel those two groups should be adversarial not (laughs) working together yeah but yeah there are people that will argue that the Yakuza kind of police their territory in ways that the actual police could not, you know, because the Yakuza yeah. aren't really held back by the same laws. But are they getting rid of that crime or are they absorbing that crime into their portfolio of crime? It's a good question. But at the very least, you're not getting so much uh, like muggings on the street. Like the streets are safe, I guess. That, that's true. And that's, that's what like politicians really like. Mm-hmm. You know, if they can say, yeah, you can feel safe walking our streets. Right. Who cares if there's a little grift going on in the back rooms, right? Mm-hmm. There's an argument to be made for that, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so to talk about the terms that are used to talk about the Yakuza, or these organized crime groups, I saw that they are also known as Gokudo, the extreme path. Okay. 
the police have dubbed them Boryokudan, which means violent groups. And this is kind of part of their whole campaign over the last couple of decades to kind of cut these people out of society. And we'll get into what that really means. But you know, I think calling them this is kind of a way to tell society at large that these are the bad guys. You know, it doesn't matter if they're handing out candy in your, in your neighborhood or whatever. These are people that we don't want around and we're going after them. Yeah, they're trying to win the public support fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Yakuza, on the other hand, might refer to themselves as Ninkyo Dantai, which translates to chivalrous organizations or humanitarian organizations, which goes back to that whole PR thing we were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing I wanted to mention in the intro is that, of course, this is at its core a travel podcast. But, Paul, are you going to encounter the Yakuza if you're a tourist in Japan? Are you going to have any sort of... Is that something you need to watch out for? No, it's unlikely. It's unlikely you'll have any contact with the Yakuza. And if you do, you probably won't even realize. Yeah, I just want to emphasize, Japan is extremely safe, and especially as a tourist, like there's no reason the Yakuza would have any interest in interacting with you. Yeah, the biggest danger I ever hear about to tourists in Japan is getting uh, like extorted for money. Like you go to a bar and they like get you to order a drink and then they try to charge you a thousand dollars for that one drink or something. Yeah. Like every once in a while you hear about that happening. And yeah, like anywhere in the world as a tourist, you got to look out like they're scams, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But you're not going to well, like physical safety. Like you, you're not going to have a problem. Yeah. I actually even heard some funny stories about tourists that wanted to find some Yakuza on their trip to Japan. Like they would ask their travel agent to find some Yakuza experience for them. And some less, uh, I don't know, less reputable travel agents might like hire fake Yakuza and be like, oh yeah, go hang out with these guys. (laughs) You know, I can get you a Yakuza experience. Yeah. (laughs) I thought that was funny. I feel like maybe that's where the Yakuza should transition now. They should just like become a tourist thing, like give guided tours of their headquarters. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, this is where we used to have these rituals, and this is our family tree history all on the wall over here. And yeah, do reenactments of like chopping off their fingers and stuff. Right, and be like, check it out. I'm missing the tip of my pinky, and everybody's yeah. like, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I feel like they could make a living off that. Yeah, maybe. Who wants to be part of a shakedown tonight? The real Yakuza experience. So let's work our way through the history of the Yakuza, Paul. Okay. So what I saw is that there's some uncertainty about the very earliest origins of the Yakuza, but there are theories. Yes, there are theories. So one theory is that the Yakuza can trace their history back to Ronin which are samurai who no longer have a master. So if your master dies, if your master decides that they don't want you around anymore, all of a sudden you're this samurai that is used to fighting and stuff, but you have nowhere to channel that energy. So these people just kind of end up turning into these roaming gangs, terrorizing people and kind of doing whatever they wanted. Yeah, so when the Tokugawa shogunate came to power, peace came to Japan for the first time in a long time. So there were a lot of samurai and 
quickly there became a lot of Ronin because they just weren't needed anymore in peacetime. Well, and the Tokugawa shogunate like decided who was still a samurai, you know, and everybody else that used to be samurai, if they didn't support the Tokugawas, they were left out. You're no longer a samurai. You can't carry weapons anymore. Yeah. That's politically astute move, perhaps. Mm -hmm. It seemed to work, but yeah, now there were a whole bunch of ronin that knew nothing but combat. Well, I don't want to say nothing but combat, but that was their main job Mm -hmm. for their whole lives. So they started forming outlaw gangs that I think they ironically called Servants of the Shogun. That's what their name translated to. So I'm assuming that's some kind of shot or something. Well, they might have come up with that name as kind of a contrast to the Machiako, which were the servants of the town. And this is the other theory of where the Yakuza might have come from. Because you got these ronin running around, basically bandits, causing trouble in towns. And then you would have people defending the town. That would be the Machiako. And so another possibility is that the Yakuza came from these people that were kind of, they were fighters because they had to defend their village. And of course, the Yakuza want people to believe in that theory because it makes them look much better, you know, if they're the ones defending the people rather than robbing the people. Yeah, so that's the one the Yakuza tend to propagate. Yeah, back to that Robin Hood kind of idea. But either way, most Yakuza groups today can apparently be traced back to these two of the lowest social classes from the mid-Edo period, around the 1700s. There were the Tekia and the Bakuto. So the Tekia were people who sold illegal goods, stolen goods, shoddy goods. They were kind of merchants. They were shady merchants, I think, is one way you could think of them, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then the Bakuto, the other group, these were people who were involved in gambling. So both of these groups, you know, they're kind of involved in sort of shady stuff kind of looked down upon by society. And over the decades and centuries, those two groups kind of evolved into what we know as the Yakuza today. And even now, specific Yakuza groups can like trace their history back to one of those two groups. And actually, that word Yakuza comes from a game that the Bakuto, those gamblers, played. So there's this game called Oicho Kabu, where you would draw three cards, and then you want those cards to add up to nine. If they add up to ten or more, you would use the second digit. So if they add up to 13, your score is three. Okay. If they add up to ten, your score is zero, because the second digit in ten is that zero. So if you drew an eight, a nine, and a three, that adds up to 20, so your score is zero. And that hand can be called Yakusa. 893 Yakuza. And it's the worst hand. Yeah. You don't want that hand. Right. So people started using this word Yakuza to refer to something worthless. Like they're the worst. They're just the worst. So that became the expression for, oh, this is awful. And eventually over time, either the Yakuza themselves or other people started calling them that. The gamblers that. Oh, Yakuza. Oh, mm-hmm. you're the worst. I'm not sure if that was like a self-deprecating thing. Or they got labeled by people that didn't like them, but... Who knows? Hundreds of years ago. Yeah. Over time, meanings of things can change quite rapidly. Yeah. I also... I'm not totally sure why 893 was pronounced Yakusa, because today that would be like Hachi-Kyu-san. 
language changes over time. Maybe that's why, but yeah. So even at this point, hundreds of years ago, we're talking like the 1700s, these gangster groups started to gain influence in the government. Between 1735 and 1740, feudal authorities actually granted official recognition to the Tekia bosses. These are those shady merchant guys. In an attempt to reduce widespread fraud among the gangs and prevent turf wars. Not entirely sure how that works, but... Yeah, I'm not sure if it's like giving them more legitimacy means they have more to lose, so they might police themselves and their territory better, or maybe they just got bribed and that was their excuse for why they were doing it. It's yeah, or maybe really just, hard to tell that long ago. Maybe it's just about like visibility, keeping them from kind of going underground and doing you know more shady stuff. If they have some sort of official capacity, maybe it was about taxes if we have these markets and you're already kind of running them now i'm going to make you official now i can expect certain things from you maybe uh and as for the bakuto the gamblers some government officials would actually hire them to do their own shady stuff for example maybe the government has this big construction project going on they're spending like a lot of money to build something well if they hire these gamblers to go in and gamble and rip off the construction workers, maybe they can reroute some of that money back to the government. They can recover their costs a little bit. Yeah. Go, uh, you got to pay all your workers, but then <laughs> you, you set the Yakuza on them to go get them gambling, go get them to spend all their money right, right on back. Mm-hmm. So it was arrangements like this that let the Yakuza gain some amount of influence on the Japanese government. And that corruption continued for centuries. Even today, there's you know, evidence of that kind of stuff going on. The government also would use the Yakuza to stifle labor movements. Yes. So the, the relationship between the Yakuza and the government was pretty much all on the conservative side, from what I saw. And uh, around the end of the 1800s, the Yakuza gangs actually joined forces with the ultranationalists in Japan. So in the late 1800s, there was a ultranationalist society called the Dark Ocean Society in Japan. And their goal was Japanese expansion abroad and authoritarian rule at home. So this group waged a campaign of terror and assassination and blackmailing to win influence over military officers and government officials to try to push these goals onto the rest of Japan. And in 1892, during the first ever national elections in Japan, they had large-scale operations where they worked with the Yakuza to wage violent campaigns in order to support conservative politicians. And they helped get a bunch of these conservative politicians elected that helped send Japan down the course in the early 1900s that led to more empire, more things that eventually culminated in World War II. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I read this paper that talked about how that union between the Yakuza and the ultranationalists happened. And they listed these five things that the groups had in common that kind of helped them come together. One is that they resented foreigners... You know, Japan is for the Japanese 
They hated liberalism and socialism. They revered a romanticized past. They deified the emperor. You know, it's all about the emperor. And they organized along this rigid Oyabun Kobun system. And we're going to get into that later. But basically, it has to do with how the organizations are structured in kind of this top-down pyramid sort of situation. I thought that was interesting that they just happened to have so much in common. Right. And this was the same group, the Dark Ocean Society, that was responsible for the assassination of the Queen of Korea in 1895. And I did not know that. So I ended up reading a lot about that just because I was super curious yeah, after that. And I hadn't heard about that either, but apparently that's what led the Japanese to invade Korea. Yeah, and I was reading about that too, and it's super complicated. Because they already had an army in Korea. That's how they killed the queen. But they were fighting the Chinese in Korea, I think in their minds, on behalf of the Korean government that they kind of set up. It's mm. super complicated, but yeah, yeah, that was one of like the big turning points that led to the total occupation of Korea, rather than just one army in there fighting the Chinese army. Okay. Uh, so like you said, uh, the success of this whole right-wing movement is kind of what led Japan into World War II. But the war was not so great for the Yakuza, really, because the Yakuza members either had to join the military or go to prison. So it kind of broke up these gangs. They got really scattered and divided and you know, didn't immediately come back together when the war ended. Everyone wants to be all ultra-nationalist until they actually start a war, and then all your stuff gets totally messed up. Yeah. Good job, guys. You, you, you killed yourselves. But what I think is super fascinating is how the Yakuza came back together after the war because... America arrived. <laughs> Good job, America. They basically gave the Yakuza back all their power and then some. And it's, it's just crazy how that happened. So the reason that this happened, the reason the U.S. was involved, I mean, obviously the U.S. was occupying Japan after the war, but another big thing they were worried about was communism. You know, yeah. China. Uh, what if Japan goes communist? Oh, they were terrified. Yeah. So... The U.S. military intelligence officials decided, hey, we can help out the ultranationalists and the Yakuza because they don't want communism. So they again used the Yakuza to break up strikes, attack leftist leaders, that kind of thing. And uh, back in episode 40, the ramen episode, we also talked about how the U.S. food rationing during that occupation gave rise to a black market of food stalls. So like there were all these food stalls popping up that were pretty much controlled by the Yakuza and it enriched their organizations a lot. Yeah, the American government imposed this food rationing and then the American soldiers sold their extra food into the black market, which was then controlled by the Yakuza. So it's like, it's the Americans saying you can't sell this food, and then the Americans selling the food and Yakuza profiting. And the U.S. also disarmed the civilian police force in Japan. So, you know, that further reduces their ability to do anything about the Yakuza. I saw that, but I don't know. Did the Yakuza have that many guns either? Like, is it really a matter of the police being outgunned? There are a lot yeah. of factors. Right, There's a lot of right. things all happening at the it same time. It may not have helped. Yeah. Uh, but probably the biggest thing, the biggest single thing that the U.S. did to help the Yakuza 
was that they released this one guy, Yoshio Kodama, from prison. Now, he was a Class A war criminal, but his saving grace was that he could be useful to the U.S. government. He had connections in the Yakuza and in the government that would help the U.S. suppress the perceived threat of communism. So they wanted access to his network of people, influential people. Yeah, especially since communists ended up taking power in China. Right. And he had a lot of experience and network in China that they really wanted to exploit. Exactly. Kodama also had a bunch of money still from his activities before and during the war. So after he was released from prison, he founded the LDP, the Liberal Democratic Party, which has been in power in Japan almost continuously ever since. That fact blew my mind. Yeah. What? This party was started by this war criminal that should have been rotting away forever from the money that he got from committing war crimes and they've been running the country and they've been in power almost ever since yeah. like oh my goodness and don't be fooled by the liberal part of that name not the at all liberal democratic party it's a it's a conservative like nationalist party right or center right something like that like yeah, yeah. just insane that that's that's wild yeah kodama also helped this other guy nobusuke kishi who was also a war criminal Helped him become the Prime Minister of Japan in 1957. He also helped Bambuku Ono become Secretary General of the party, that Liberal Democratic Party, uh, in 1963. So basically, like single-handedly, he was able to bring the Yakuza back into power and give them all of this control over the government. Yeah, he was the big link between the highest powers in the government and the Yakuza. I imagine a lot of... Uh bribes and things were facilitated through him and a lot of greasing of the wheels. It really blew my mind how much the Yakuza are involved in politics in Japan. Mm -hmm. Like they volunteer for campaigns, like they're staffers on politicians' campaigns. They do fundraising for politicians. Can you imagine someone running for Congress here and finding out like, Oh, the Italian mafia raised $500,000 for their campaign and they accepted it. I mean, what? I don't know if that, I don't know if those are the numbers or whatever, but like that was crazy to me that they're working on the campaign and raising money for these politicians. I mean, you better believe that the Italian mafia has done similar types of stuff in the US. Oh, I'm not doubting that it happened. Especially like in the Northeast, you know. I mean, we know here everybody's buying our politicians. Yeah. Incredibly cheap, too. You donate just a few thousand dollars sometimes and get a person in Congress to, to change their vote. Hmm. It's we should incredible. look into that. It's incredible. Yeah. These companies spend like half a million dollars on lobbying and they'll get like some benefit in legislation that's worth billions to them. It's an incredibly good investment. Yeah. It's wrong, but <laughs> that's, that's another story. Yeah. So, anyway. As a result of all of this, by the early 1960s, the Yakuza had reached their peak level of influence with over 200,000 members. Peak Yakuza. Yeah. In 1976, though, this power structure was disrupted because it was discovered that Kodama, the prime minister, and other high-up government officials had accepted around 12 million U.S. dollars from Lockheed to secure airplane sales contracts from the government. There's America again. <laughs> yeah. 
that's a lot of money too. You know, again, this is all wrong, but I at least got to respect them. Like people that go to jail for like a hundred bucks. I'm like, oh man, like, you know, if you're going to commit a crime, Make why, it worth it. why not pocket a million dollars? You know? Yeah, $12 million in 1976, that's a decent chunk of change. Yeah, if you hide it well enough, your family can live well while you're in prison. Yeah. Uh, so Kodama was arrested in 1981, and he died in jail in 1984. But like I said, there's still plenty of evidence that the Yakuza still had their hands in government affairs throughout at least the next couple decades. Oh, yeah. And in local ways, too. Like, they're definitely bribing local politicians and police officers as well. In 1992, the government started to crack down on the Yakuza with the Anti-Boryokudan Act. Remember, Boryokudan was that violent group's designation that the police gave them. Yeah, and that was long overdue. You know, in, in the United States, we passed anti-organized crime laws like Way back when we were dealing with that in like the 30s and 40s or 20s. Well, we had all that crap going on during Prohibition, right? Right. So we kind of had to do something about it. (laughs) Right. You got to make what they're doing illegal, or at least a part of what they're doing that you can pin them with illegal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I looked into this Anti-Boryokudan Act. I couldn't find like real specific stuff that it did, but it seems like that, along with a bunch of other laws that came came around over the next 20 years or so, they all, basically, the goal was to try to cut the Yakuza out of various industries, like money lending, construction, public works projects. They also, later on, tried to almost like cut the Yakuza out of society entirely. Like they would make it illegal to really have any kind of business dealings with them at all. There were a couple things I saw from these laws One that I thought was interesting was that the police were allowed to designate a group as organized crime based on the proportion of convicted criminals among the members. Hmm. So I guess if you ran a business and you had X amount of ex-convicts in the crew, it could be marked as organized crime. And then they could do more to break it up. Okay, I thought that was an interesting idea. Yeah, they also cracked down a lot on gambling and on nonviolent offenses, writing maybe more clearer laws about loan sharking and stuff like that. That maybe was like a legal gray area before. Hmm. So the result of all of these laws is that by 2010 there were only around seventy thousand three hundred yakuza. That's down from remember that peak in the sixties of like two hundred thousand. And it seems like they also shifted over that time period towards white collar crime. It's like like moving away from using as much violence. They would rely more on bribery, blackmail, that kind of thing. And I actually saw that they became one of the least murderous criminal groups in the world. Oh, okay. Apparently they keep track of that kind of thing. Okay. I feel like the the more technical they get, pretty soon the Yakuza are going to be sending out like phishing emails. <laughs> Congratulations, well, you're inheriting $10 million. I just watched this show on Netflix recently called Scams. Yeah. It's about this group of people that does like uh, phone scams to old people, you know, ripping off old people. And the Yakuza, the, you know, we'll we'll get into the crimes and stuff a little later, but it seems like this is common where the bottom level 
Like the people that are actually doing the scams aren't Yakuza, but the Yakuza have their hand in it. Like they're kind of overseeing this or at least getting money passed up to them by the, the scammers. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't know. It's an interesting show. Uh, I don't know. It's a little cheesy sometimes, but Scams on Netflix is, is a pretty good watch. Yeah. Scams are so big these days. I hate it. It's, yeah. it's, it's awful. They've always been pretty big. They just get more sophisticated, it feels like. True. People have been scamming other people forever. Yeah. Uh, so, let's see. In 2010, the Yakuza exclusion ordinances went a little further. Like I said, trying to cut off Yakuza from the rest of society, making it illegal to have pretty much any kind of relationship with the Yakuza. So these days, technically, it's not illegal to be a member of a Yakuza organization, and the government has, like, lists of all these people that are, you know, official members of a Yakuza organization. But they've made it really difficult to be a Yakuza member because it's illegal to pay off the Yakuza, so that makes it hard for them to make money. Uh, people can't associate with Yakuza without taking on risk. So hard to get money from people when nobody even wants to, like, talk to you. Uh, the Yakuza can't get a phone a hotel room, an apartment, a bank account. It's like, where do you even live? You know, they're kind of, there are all these roadblocks. No matter what they're trying to do in life, they can't really do anything. Yeah, it doesn't matter how much money you have if no one will sell you anything. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like these days, like a lot of people don't want to be a part of it anymore because it's just a really difficult way to live. I think that's just part of the reason why the Aquas has gone quote-unquote legit. You know, they've actually started corporations mm-hmm. and they call themselves president, board members, and all that. They're trying to become legit enough, at least, you know, to skate by. Yeah. I've also heard, though, that in more recent years, there are, like, no limits on what the Yakuza are willing to do because they have so few options. It's like they're getting desperate almost. And I saw some people criticize the law's saying that they violated the Yakuza's human rights. And I mean, it kind of makes sense. Like, they can't do anything. They don't have any of the rights. They're not in prison, but they can't really live outside of prison either. Right. If they won't let you rent a place to live, like, do people not have the right to, to a place to live? Mm-hmm. You know, they're not, a, they're not in prison. They're not currently a convicted person. So how do you legally and morally deny them the right to exist in your society? Yeah. So the result of all this is that as of 2020, this is the most recent stat I saw, is that there were about 25,900 active Yakuza members in Japan. So even between 2010 and 2020, it went from around 70,000 down to like 26,000. Dying industry. Yep. Let's talk about the culture of Yakuza organizations, right? This is fascinating. So maybe we should start with a little bit of the organization. And I guess we should start with one of the huge focuses is, you mentioned this earlier, the Oyabun-Kobun relationships, right? Mm -hmm. So it means father role and child role. Yeah, I saw that. The word Oyabun translates directly to foster parent, and Kobun is foster children. So it really is like this familial relationship. 
or at least that's kind of what they're trying to stress, is that you have like this duty to your family. Yeah, it kind of like rings a little bit uh, Confucian in that, like you mm-hmm. have the duty to your father, and the father has the duty to the family, and everyone's got their strict role. And Yeah, and Yakuza normally cut ties to their blood relatives to be a part of this new family. So they take a blood oath of allegiance to their Yakuza family. And, you know, another thing we should point out is that the Yakuza aren't a single group. Like, there isn't one Yakuza in Japan. That word refers to these syndicates. You know, there's several different families, similar to how the Italian mafia has families, you know? Yeah. And then even within the syndicates, there's a bunch of different groups that are kind of hierarchically laid out, but they don't all interact with each other very much. Right. And depending on the family, I mean, these structures get extremely complex. Like I looked in so many places to try to pin down like, okay, there's this guy at the top and then these guys below him. But it really depends on how they decide to set it up. Kind of like a corporation, you know, corporations don't always have the same exact types of roles and stuff. It all depends on what their goals are how they decide to set things up. Mm-hmm. But in general, you got that Oyabun, the boss at the very top, and then immediately below that person are various Saiko Komon, or senior advisors, who each have their own territories that they control. And then beneath those people, they might have underbosses, advisors, accountants, enforcers, so generally, like the structure is like a pyramid. You got the one guy at the top, and then he has a few real important people right below him who are his you know, foster children. And then those people are the foster parent to a group of foster children that they bring into the organization. So it's all built on this kind of idea of family and is structured in a big hierarchy. Yeah. And the pyramid, I think, is a good way to describe that. But then even the syndicates themselves... There's a couple different ways they're laid out, right? There's the pyramidal structure of a syndicate where you've got all these little groups that are a pyramid, but then it's like they are connected to a bigger group who's connected to a bigger group who's eventually connected to the top group, and that's an overall pyramidal structure. It's like fractals. (laughs) Yakuza fractals. And there's at least one syndicate, though, that does a federation style where there's a bunch of groups that have their own pyramidal structure, but then those groups are more equal, and all the top bosses of those groups are pretty equal, and they elect one person, but that person has less authority than the top person in a pyramidal structure would. So there's that kind of uh, structure as well. There's, There's diversity among the Yakuza. Yeah. I saw that you could also think of these different groups under the main umbrella, as like franchises because the money kind of flows in a similar way. Each group conducts their own business. They make their money the way that they want to or whatever. And then they use the name of that larger organization to kind of command respect and maybe strike fear in people's hearts. And then money is always getting like sent up the pyramid. You just got me like rethinking franchises, bro. (laughs) Whoa. I was are, just reading the other day about how franchises Chick-fil-A's, organized crime. Uh, it's kind of I don't know. They do some shady stuff. 
And once they get you bought in, you're kind of at their mercy because they can change a lot of stuff. And what are you going right. to do? Stop your contract? You already invested in opening up this whole store. Yeah. And now they're just going to not let you do business anymore. Like, And the people at the bottom are the ones taking on all the risk. Yeah. But they're not like, they're not the people getting the big chunk of the money. Yeah. Chick fil A doesn't lose anything if one store closes, but the person who invested their life savings to open that store loses everything. Mm -hmm. Sorry, we need, we need to move on from this. <laughs> so, yeah, the payments were interesting. I saw there are a few special times where you, you are required to pay other than your normal payments. So, there's New Year's gifts. Mm -hmm. So, money flows upwards on New Year's. For funerals, there's gifts. You know, if someone dies, that's in your gang, I guess. And then when a member is released from prison, it's customary to, to gift them. Makes sense. Yeah, get them back on their feet. They, they took one for the team. Yeah. You know, you're expected to go to jail for those people higher in the structure than you. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you just got to take the blame, even if you didn't do something. Yeah, and knowing that there's a bunch of money waiting for you when you get out is going to make you less likely to squeal or make Ex a deal. Yeah, exactly. It's You're getting repaid for your sacrifice to the organization. Yeah. All right, let's talk about some of these Yakuza rituals, because... You know, it's surprisingly, a lot of the Yakuza culture is kind of based in these old Shinto ideas. Mm -hmm. So one of these rituals is called Sakazuki, or Sake Sharing. And you might remember from the last episode we did about Sake, episode 91, Sakazuki is this shallow little dish that you use to drink sake in certain religious ceremonies. Mm -hmm. And that same vessel is used in this Yakuza ceremony where two people form that Oyabun-Kobun bond. So like, if you are bringing somebody into the organization and you want to formalize that bond, it's like, I'm your foster parent, you're the foster child, we're going to share this cup of sake. That's how you do that. Yeah, they can also use sake ceremonies to appoint a new leader of the syndicate or even to build alliances with other syndicates, you might do a sake ceremony. So there's lots of times where they would use that. Yeah, it's all about forming those bonds. So another morbid yet kind of famous ritual is the yubitsume, which I alluded to in the opening. Mm -hmm. So for serious violations of Yakuza code, that don't warrant death or expulsion, which are the two highest penalties possible. A member may be subjected to yubitsume, which is cutting off the tip of your finger. Yep. You want to give us some details, Jason? Sure, I would love to. This is probably the most well-known Yakuza ritual. Because, it, yeah, it's... It's dramatic. Definitely. It's dramatic, yeah. and it... Uh, you know, it shows well in a movie or something, you know, if you yeah. need to make a powerful scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if you've made any kind of, like, major mistake and you need to apologize to your boss, what you're going to do is you're going to lay down a clean cloth in front of you. You're going to place your hand down on the cloth, palm down, and then you get out a very sharp knife. It's in your best interest to make it as sharp oh, as you possibly God, can, yes. I would think. yes. And then you're going to cut off the tip of your left p 
pinky finger down to the top knuckle. Now, this is assuming this is your first offense where you're, you know, where you've yeah. had to do this. You just got to keep going a knuckle deeper every time. Right. So don't mess up very often. Right. So tip your left finger, left pinky finger. You're going to cut that off and then you're going to wrap it up in that cloth and you're going to offer it with both hands to your boss and hope that that's enough to gain his forgiveness. Imagine slicing off the tip of your own finger. I can't and imagine like that. You're, you're, <laughs> right, that's hard enough already. And then you go walk up to your boss and you're handing it to him and he's just looking at you with that stern face and you're like, oh my God, I just cut off my finger and I'm not even sure he's going to accept this. I might have to do more than this. I know. Oh, I can't man. imagine what that would feel like. Like, how do you do that without That's what seems so out? hardcore <laughs> about this. The fact that you do it yourself. Yeah. This is like brutal and barbaric, but I feel like this is part of how the Yakuza get romanticized because there's something stoic or brave or manly or something about being able to slice your own finger off yeah, and like just bear it, you know, mm-hmm. have the guts to do that. I wonder if it gets easier after the first time. Like if you keep messing up, like, like you said, you got to keep going down knuckle by knuckle. And if you run out of joints on that finger, you would then move on to your right pinky, the pinky on your right hand. So yeah, so you might, you might even move on to ring fingers after that. <laughs> If I'm not mistaken, this is not popular anymore, like current day, because it gives you away too much as a Yakuza, I think, and because they've made it illegal to make someone do that. I don't know how that wasn't illegal before, but I guess maybe because they were doing it themselves. But I saw in 1997, approximately 42% of Yakuza had at least part of their finger cut off. That's almost half. Like, that's crazy. I saw some interviews with like Yakuza guys that were definitely missing chunks of their fingers. All I could keep thinking is like, these days, you need to be able to type. Like, you can't can't cut all your fingers off, guys. You got to be able to type. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know why that's the stupid thing I'm thinking about. You lose a finger and I'm like, what about computers? (laughs) That's interesting though, because... You know, if you use a computer a lot, that might give you extra motivation to keep all of your fingers and not mess up. But uh, the history behind this yeah, ritual, if you're a gamer, yeah, I can't hit, I can't hit tab anymore. I don't whatever. know how many yakuza have time for video games like that, but this ritual is supposed to go back to those bakuto, the the shady gamblers, yeah. at the origins of the yakuza, because cutting off a finger could be a way for someone to pay off a gambling debt that they couldn't pay. Yeah. Another idea behind this is that if you're using a sword like they did a few hundred years ago. You're going to have a weaker grip if you're missing pieces of fingers. So that kind of makes you more reliant on the organization. Mm. And okay. it, it weakens you in a one-on-one fight. Okay. So I think my favorite ritual that I, I did the research on was the Demukai. Tell me more. This is the prison release ceremony. So this, again, is less popular these days because it... Uh, felt like they were flaunting too much and drawing too much attention and started becoming a public relations problem. But back in the day, whenever a member of the gang was getting out of prison, all the Yakuza would line up in front of the prison gates, you know, highest ranked member to lowest ranked member. So when the person's walking out, everybody's there to greet them. 
and welcome them back into the family. It's to welcome them back, but it's also to flaunt to the government like your rehabilitation failed. <laughs> he's two steps out the prison. He's already back in the gang with us. Yeah. Like you did not fix him. You're never going to change us. It was kind of like a rebellious thing. And then they'd go party and probably give them their money, their gifts. Yeah, It's interesting. Yeah. I, uh, I thought that was creative and a really interesting fact. The teenager in me still liked that one. <laughs> like, you know, they're violent criminals. So obviously they're not good guys, but you know, like sticking it to the system just, I don't know, sparked something in me. Well, good thing you weren't a teenager in Japan, I guess. Maybe you would have. I'd been recruited. <laughs> <laughs> so these days, do you think if you were in Japan, Jason, you'd recognize a Yakuza like sitting next to a bar? I doubt it. Unless they were missing a chunk of a finger or they had some bit of tattoo peeking out, maybe. Yeah. Even these days, it's like. Even if you see a tattoo in Japan, they're still not super common, but I don't think it definitely doesn't mean Yakuza anymore like it used to. Not necessarily, but the Yakuza do have a specific style of tattoo that's pretty recognizable. Yeah. Go back to episode 61 if you want to hear more about the tattoos. We did a whole episode about traditional Irezumi. They have these whole full body tattoos. It's very cool, but we're going to gloss over that here because we did that whole episode. That's one of the best things about the Yakuza, though, I think, is that they help develop that incredibly beautiful style of body art. Yeah, it like, is super cool. Japanese tattooing owes a lot to the Yakuza for its development, and it's, it's, it's amazing. It really is. Episode 61. Yeah, yeah. So these days, you know, I did see that they might be wearing kind of flashy clothing, expensive sunglasses, that sort of thing. It might be less common these days than it used to be because, you know, they're trying to stay kind of under the radar. <laughs> they don't want to make it obvious. They don't want to flaunt their criminality to everybody. Yeah. I saw that they might be more likely to be wearing expensive sweatsuits now. So it's like, <laughs> they're, not, uh, they're not flashy, but it's like, this is still expensive stuff. You Will know? they turn it into the Eastern European mafia? <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, I feel like a lot of business suits these days, too, because they all have these shell corporations that they run that are their Yakuza groups now, but they're actually businesses. So mm -hmm. I think a lot of them dress similarly to a businessman, maybe with a little more flair and style. Yeah, especially the higher ups, like the people at the very bottom are going to look more like just normal civilians, probably. If they got a couple buttons undone and no tie, maybe they're Yakuza or maybe, maybe they just had a long day of work. Who knows? Right. Mm hmm. In those Yakuza games, a lot of them, like, the Yakuza people are all in these really sharp pinstripe suits with these huge lapels and stuff. Maybe I'm thinking mostly of the one that takes place in the 80s. They span, like, decades in those video games, but yeah. it does seem like they're usually, like, recognizably flashy. And I don't think that's so much the case in real life anymore. Yeah, they're trying to fit in more these days, for yep. sure. Maybe... The most consistent part of the Yakuza image is that they seem to have this confidence or an attitude like they own the place, like they're on top. I saw an interview with this ex-Yakuza guy, and he talked about this, how when he was in the Yakuza and they would just you know, walk around, it felt like they were above everybody else. And they acted like they ran things no matter where they went. They were always like the people in charge. Okay, yeah. I mean, I feel like in Japanese media, like anybody that's 
delinquent or criminal at all is kind of like that. Just like super cocky and confident, mm-hmm. which is kind of like the opposite of like how the Japanese tend to usually portray themselves as, I guess. So I could see why it'd be that way. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think in gangs in general, not just in Japan, but it's like a lot of it is about this kind of macho-ness and you can't show weakness. You know, if you show any weakness, you're going to pay. Yeah. I see groups like that. I always feel like bad for them. I know they like got themselves into it kind of, but it's like, seems like a horrible way to live. Like they're all on edge all the time, afraid that their manliness might be questioned and then they have to overreact and get violent to things. Like totally, it's just awful. Like it's so stupid, but that's what their whole culture is. And that's how they value each other. You can't show that weakness at all. Yeah. Real strong people can show who they are and not be afraid. Mm-hmm. And if your friends were really your friends, they wouldn't leave you because you showed vulnerability. Exactly. Any any Yakuza out there listening? That's, <laughs> that's, that's the truth of life. Teach them a lesson, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> well, shall we finally get into the types of crimes that Yakuza organizations might be involved in? Yeah, I mean, I've got a big list, and I'm sure I don't have everything on here that yeah. they do. I mean, well, they have to get creative, too. There's always new stuff to come up with, new scams or whatever. Yeah, right? There's always the next thing. So drug trafficking. That's a huge one. They get a ton of their money off drugs. Yeah, both domestic and international, and I saw especially meth is a big one. Yeah. In even, like, parts of the U.S. and Hawaii especially, like, they control massive drug empires. Mm-hmm. It depends on the family, though. Some syndicates actually forbid drug trafficking by their members. Uh, Gun smuggling is also a thing. Smuggling anything. Guns and drugs go together a lot of the time. They're heavily into pornography and all those shady adult businesses. Human trafficking. Yeah. Some groups. That's that's so messed up. Yeah. They will find girls in poor countries in Southeast Asia, and then they promise them that they can make good money in Japan— and then they bring them to Japan and force them into sex slavery. Basically, yeah. it's yeah. I mean, it's horrific. It is. Plenty of extortion, lots of gambling related activities, you know, bookmaking, organizing, gambling, parties and trips, running high stakes cards games, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. I saw that like protection money is a big thing. And this kind of, I was really big into the Sopranos, so this is pretty familiar to me. Yeah. The kind of thing yeah. where you're, you go and you're like, you know, oh, nice nice place you got here. It'd be a shame if something happened to it, you know? Yeah. And then they get money. Supposedly the money is so that the criminal will protect the place from other things happening, but it's also kind of to protect the but place from them. They're literally the only criminals in the area. <laughs> and it's like, who would I need protection yeah. from other than you? Yeah. So, like, in in The Sopranos, it was mostly, like, small businesses, restaurants, or whatever, but the Yakuza will actually go after big corporations in the same way. They'll basically say, like, okay, either you give us money, or we're going to start going to stockholder meetings and, like, just cause trouble. You know, we're going to stand up and start making a scene. We're going to scare away your investors. We're going to embarrass the company. Maybe we have some dirty secrets that the company has been trying to keep on the down low. We can uh, bring some attention to those. So it's basically like blackmail. Yeah. And this type of stuff too, it's like, 
I was reading a lot about how like, you know, the Japanese public has a perception that like, oh, the Yakuza are nonviolent. They only hurt each other every once in a while, right? They don't target civilians, but it's like, okay, they don't target random person walking down the street. But if you happen to own a local business, now they might rough you up to try to get you to pay. Or how about the customers of yours that they're scaring away to stop you from doing business? Like, they're not actually like not violent. It's yeah. just they only go after specific people, I guess you could say. Yeah. It's like a certain type of violence that most people don't really see, but it allows them to worm their way into all these industries and the government. Yeah. I think it's more intimidation than violence, but you couldn't have intimidation if there weren't some violence at some point. Yeah. Yeah. There's always that threat of violence at the very least. Yeah. Do we mention insurance fraud? That's such a huge crime nowadays for everyone. Of course, the Yakuza is involved in that now too. There's so many people out there trying to defraud their insurance companies. There's so many yeah. hilarious stories about people just being really dumb. Yeah, I was thinking you know, that too. Like, like, you know, you hear about people that like kill somebody that they just took a life insurance policy out on the day before they died. Yeah, day before, <laughs> day before, and then the person just gets murdered. And they have no alibi, and it's like, would you think you'd get away with this? Yeah. People burn their houses down, like, fairly often and try to get the insurance money. Pretty silly. Uh, the Yakuza have also been known to deal in real estate. Mm -hmm. For example, if a developer wants to, maybe they want to own an entire city block because they're working on this big development project but maybe they're like a couple little lots that they can't get their hands on because the owners just refuse to sell. Well, developer can just send in some Yakuza to make them sell. Yep. And that's actually a big plot point in one of the Yakuza video games that I played. Yeah. See, it's, you learn a lot from those games, Paul. Yeah. So you could either, you know, listen to this podcast or you could buy a PlayStation, get all the Yakuza games and spend a thousand hours playing them. They go on sale pretty you, often. You'd you learn a really lot. Cheap. I'm not saying you wouldn't learn from these games. If yeah. you knew nothing about Yakuza and you played these games, you'd understand them much, much better coming out of it, mm -hmm. I'm sure. So what about theft, Paul? Are the Yakuza involved in theft? You know, I didn't really see a lot of that. Yeah, I saw that they, they don't go in that direction very often because they at least want to appear as semi-theft legitimate organizations and again they rely on those community ties you know the pr stuff so they don't want to betray the community by like just petty theft they don't okay. want to it's just a bad look yeah if you're getting protection money from someone that's just a contract right that's just stealing everybody knows that's stealing right? yeah you mm -hmm. can't try to obscure it you know like right. oh it wasn't actually that bad they're heavily involved in the entertainment industry, mm -hmm. though entertainment industries everywhere tend to be super shady as far as I understand for various reasons. I'm not really sure, but I don't know how much of what they do there is illegal. I'm sure a lot of what they do there is super shady, but they seem to be heavily involved in that. Anywhere there's a lot of money moving around, they'll find a way to get a chunk of it. Yep. Weasel their way in. That's just what they do. So I think I mentioned before, I did hear that the Yakuza have less limits these days about what crimes they're willing to get into in reaction to, uh, you know, all those laws and stuff and the extreme pressure, uh, being cut out of society, all that stuff. Yeah, they were always trying to fit in. But now if you 
completely cut them out, they have less to lose, right? Mm -hmm. And with their numbers declining so much, I get the impression that, like, they used to have this kind of code of honor, a certain way that they ran things, but now that's kind of dissolving and there's less of that loyalty and people, like I said, they're just getting desperate. They're doing whatever they have to do. I do find that plausible, but I also was wondering when I was reading all this, like, is that just our recency bias? Like, are the Yakuza always up to no good? And during that time, like a hundred years ago, maybe people thought the same thing. Oh, wow. The Yakuza are really starting to get violent. Because there's always the stories about, oh, in the past, they were the Robin Hoods, they were the good guys, but in current reality, they probably never look as good as the romanticized past. Maybe, but I don't know. I saw an interview with this guy who's spent like his whole adult life reporting on the Yakuza and getting in there. And that, that's what he said. It's like, these days, there are no limits. They don't like, even there care. used to be, but anymore. not anymore. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a well-known fact. When people get desperate, all morality goes out the window real quick. Mm-hmm. I think it was that same guy that said this quote. He was talking about how violence is a, a constant tool for the Yakuza. He said, violence is everything. Violence is how they punctuate their sentences. So, okay. He talked about them using like baseball bats, swords. Here's another thing. In the Yakuza games, you know, you get into all these street brawls and it's like way over the top and totally ridiculous. And it's like, there's no way there's any truth to this part of it, you know? Yeah. Because there are parts in the game where you like pick up a bicycle on the side of the street and smash it over somebody's head. But this guy said, no, they, they beat people up with bicycles. And I actually saw a photo of a Yakuza guy holding a bicycle in the air, like he was about to smash it down on somebody. <laughs> wow. That actually happens, apparently. There's a lot of bikes around, so. Yeah. Okay, so where do the Yakuza operate? We know what they do now. Where do they do it, Paul? I mean, I think they're pretty much all over Japan, mm-hmm. but the largest syndicates, uh, I believe, are based in Tokyo and Kobe. Um, you'll find them in the red light districts in most cities, kind of stomping ground area. I saw that Kyushu has actually been the largest source of Yakuza members. Fukuoka has the largest number of designated syndicates out of all of the prefectures in Japan. Wow. Yeah. But the Yakuza also will operate internationally. They're involved in sex tourism and drug trafficking throughout Southeast Asia. That's a big market for them these days. Uh, They also have groups in South Korea, China, Taiwan, the Pacific Islands. And as Paul mentioned, they also have presence in the U.S., especially Hawaii, because it's kind of an in-between point between Japan and the U.S. Yep. Anywhere there's a large expatriate Japanese community, there's Yakuza. Yeah, especially like the West Coast cities like Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle. I saw that there they have alliances with Chinese, Korean, and Vietnamese gangs as well. Mm. South America. You know, Argentina, Brazil. Oh, yeah. A lot, of, a lot of Japanese people in Brazil. Yep. So are there any possible positive side effects? I know we've kind of alluded to a couple maybe from the Yakuza existing. Yeah, we mentioned mm-hmm. it in the intro a little bit. Um, I mean, they do sometimes contribute to society in positive ways. You know, whether or not it's for PR, they do contribute. After the 1995 Kobe earthquake, 
as well as after the 2011 Tohoku earthquake and tsunami, the Yakuza were quicker to respond than the government, and they provided a lot of disaster relief services. So, you know, maybe their motivations weren't the purest, but they did it. Yep. Can't take that away. Like, they were there handing out water. Mm -hmm. In 2011, they sent hundreds of trucks full of food, water, blankets, all sorts of stuff. That's something. As I mentioned before, they also can help police communities in ways that the official police cannot. They can prevent other criminal organizations from popping up. They're going to keep a close eye on their territory. So you're kind of trading one type of crime for another. You know, the Yakuza are around, but you're not going to get mugged in the street. You're not going to have this low-level crime just kind of constant. Yeah, I mean, they're part of the balance of Japanese society as a whole. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'm pretty sure I saw a policeman say that he was a little worried about the future now that the Yakuza are declining so much because the Yakuza were visible. You know, you could see what they were doing, but now like maybe all this stuff is going to get pushed underground and the police have no idea what's going on anymore. It becomes less organized. It's just small groups of people here and there doing random stuff. It's harder to track down and keep an eye on everything, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But these days there are more police than there used to be and there are less Yakuza. So even though in the past some people might have called them a necessary evil, having the Yakuza around, it sounds like maybe that's not so much the case anymore. We'll see. See what happens over the next couple decades. So, we should probably talk about what kind of people become Yakuza. Well, for one thing, Yakuza are overwhelmingly men. Yes. There have been a few notable women, but they're usually the wives of bosses, and they don't hold power for long. One of the major areas for recruiting for the Yakuza is obviously just the lower underserved classes in society. So we've talked about the Burakumin before, who are the untouchables in Japanese society, the families that traditionally work with dead bodies and stuff, like doing tanning or burying people, all that sort of stuff. They've been ostracized from society. So they tend to be looking more for a connection, for a family, for some place they fit in. Mm -hmm. Because that's so emphasized in Japanese society. You have to fit in, but then they won't let them fit in. So it kind of opens them up to being preyed upon by the Yakuza to let them in, to give them something to care about. Mm -hmm. uh, in 2006, a former officer of the Public Security Intelligence Agency said that around 60% of Yakuza members come from Burakamin, that class. Yeah. You've got no options for a better life in society. Yeah, and the government isn't helping you out. You know, you kind of take things into your own hand. You might... People don't even want their kids marrying you because you're from the wrong class or whatever. Mm -hmm. I could see how a lot of resentment would build up. Yeah. And when someone finally accepted you, it'd be so much easier to really devote your life to that organization. Yeah. I saw that they heavily recruit from uh, youth motorcycle gangs, those hot rod gangs that dress up their scooters with ridiculous add-ons and stuff. I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, They're kind of known as like delinquents, so I guess some of them grow up to become grown-up delinquents, which are Yakuza, yes. Besides the Burakumin, I saw that another 30% of Yakuza members are Japanese-born Koreans. 
Saw that as well. That's another group that's been discriminated against in Japan for a long time. Yeah, so in that way it makes sense, but we were just talking about in the history, the Yakuza are the anti-foreigner right wing. So the Yakuza are the ones discriminating against them, but then they also recruit them, and I guess it's okay once they become Yakuza. I mean, a lot of these families have lived there for a long time. Like, these people are ethnically Korean, but they're basically Japanese because that's yeah. where their families live forever. Yeah, that is an interesting little contradiction. There. <laughs> it is. As I saw that, I was like, huh, interesting. Once you drink the sake, you become family, and it doesn't matter where you came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, the people, like all the people, no matter where they're coming from, the people that get involved with the Yakuza, I think, are generally people that feel like society has failed them. You know, they don't have anywhere else to get a sense of community. They don't have anyone else that's going to stand up for them. So you could think of groups like the Yakuza as a symptom of deeper societal problems. You know, crime doesn't just come out of nowhere. It's, it's a reaction to something, and it can be a reaction to discrimination and disenfranchisement. So I think as we've alluded to, the Yakuza is pretty heavily portrayed in the media, not even just in Japan, like in America too. Yeah. Um, you know, we've talked about the Yakuza video games. There's lots of Yakuza movies, just like there's gangster movies here. Yeah, it's kind of popular. You know, it's it's an action-packed thing that's that's fun to watch. Yeah. And it's funny, like in those movies, in Yakuza movies, they can be portrayed in a couple of ways, you know. The director or writer can appeal to those old romantic ideas of, you know, loyalty and duty and honor and whatever, and kind of make the Yakuza look uh, respectable and honorable. Or they could decide to portray them as these horrible criminals, which is maybe closer to the truth. But I also heard that you have to be a little careful if you're making a Yakuza movie because the Yakuza like watching movies about them. And if they don't like the way that they're portrayed, you might get a visit from them. And it might not be a (laughs) positive experience for you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, those movies have been super popular. I saw that uh, Japan's most famous Yakuza figure was this guy Shimizu Jirocho who uh, operated in the mid-1800s. And between 1911 and 1940, there were 16 films made about him. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. It is. Uh, You'll also see Yakuza fairly often in anime and manga. Mm -hmm. Paul, did you ever watch The Way of the House Husband? Uh, I read the manga. Okay. Yeah, so uh, it's a series on Netflix now, uh, and I recommend it to anybody... Because it's hilarious. It's, it's about this guy who used to be like a legend in the Yakuza. Like everybody knew about him because he was just ruthless and super strong and all this stuff. He's a bad guy. But now he's left that life behind and he's a house husband. And he just stays home and makes food for his wife while she's out working. And uh, it, it's really funny. Because all sorts of hilarious misunderstandings ensue. And- yeah, everybody always like is afraid of him as soon as they see him. He just wants to get good deals on his groceries and stuff. Yeah, they'll they'll, they'll like be a the teller will be like really scared and all intimidated, and he'll look, get all this crazy look on his <laughs> face, and then they'll be like, 
Are these cabbages really, really two dollars a pound? That's a great deal. I'll take, I'll take all of them or whatever, you know. And then they're like, "Oh, he's not that bad of a guy." Yeah, and then he has like this group of neighborhood moms that they're all like friends and stuff. Yeah, he's part of the the stay at home mom group. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So as for like the public perception of the Yakuza, you know, there are those romantic ideas in in media and stuff, but I think generally. Most people disapprove of the Yakuza. I actually have some stats here. I saw that in a study in 2011, they found that one in 10 adults under age 40 believes that the Yakuza should be allowed to exist. 10%? That's low. That's super low. Still, I don't know. I was a little surprised that one in 10 people is like, yeah, these organized crime groups, that's totally fine. Yeah, but the way surveys work... Like trying to get over 90% of people to agree on anything, no matter how straightforward and obvious in a poll like that, is almost impossible. Good point. So once again, Paul, I know we mentioned this at the beginning, but uh, just to restate it, are you going to come across Yakuza as a tourist in Japan? No. You're much more likely to be hurt in an earthquake than by a Yakuza. And even that is still super unlikely. Yeah, that was a joke. <laughs> We're not doing this episode to uh, to scare people or anything. I just think it's an interesting topic. I remember we did that early earthquakes episode, and we we're like, "You're yeah. not you're not going to die yeah. in an earthquake in Japan." I know we're talking about all these crazy earthquakes they've had today. Yeah, we had to put a disclaimer at the beginning, like <laughs> don't we don't want to make this sound too scary because it's <laughs> it's interesting, but it's not going to be a problem for you. Most earthquakes are kind of fun. That's been my experience. You know, until they're not, I guess, probably. I've never been in a super bad one. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, if you want to learn more about Yakuza, I think you should, because it's a fascinating topic, in my opinion. I will recommend an academic paper I found called Yakuza, the Warlords of Japanese Organized Crime. If you Google that phrase, you will find it. It's from 1997, but there's a lot of good info in there about the history and culture, especially like during the Yakuza's heyday. Yeah. And if you do want to seek out a Yakuza experience in Japan, I did actually find a couple ways to do that. Oh, 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 oh boy. First one I saw is that you need to find an establishment that is controlled by the Yakuza and then you go get some drinks or something and refuse to pay. That's one way you are likely to have a Yakuza experience. That sounds like a good idea. I didn't say it would be a positive experience, just that it would be an experience. So, How confused would they be? You're, like, you're just being obstinate, <laughs> yeah. and the Yakuza shows up, this. and he starts like needling you and then he starts yelling and you're like getting more excited like yeah he's doing the thing yeah you like start taking a video can i see your tattoos <laughs> Dude, let me let me see your left pinky finger yeah man what did that feel like tell me about that so yeah that's a bad idea don't don't do that um the only reasonable way that i found to see some yakuza is attending that Sanja Matsuri at Sensoji. We talked about this in the Sensoji episode, 87. Yakuza are known to attend the specific festival. So you might be able to catch a glimpse of some of those cool tattoos. 
Well, like we said, there are less Yakuza now than there ever have been. So if you do see one, consider yourself lucky. Anything else, Paul? Any final words? No, I think that about wraps it up. All right. Well, before we end the episode, we actually do have one more piece of business to take care of, and that's listener mail. All right. And I'm not even talking about digital mail. We got an actual physical package right here from longtime listener and friend of the podcast, Josh Spiro. Oh, really? Yeah. Thanks, Josh. Yeah, thank you. Um, for those that don't know, Josh suggested our Tanuki episode. He suggested the Robots episode. He even made us some intro music for the Robot episode, which was awesome. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we talk on Instagram and stuff, and he's just a cool dude. And he sent us a package, so let's open it. Paul, you want to do the honors? I'd love to. Oh, there's something for me <laughs> from Santa. They're all wrapped up, too. Star Wars wrapping paper. Nice, nice. touch. Oh, there's something for you. Ooh. Dude, this wrapping paper is awesome. It's like uh, instead of skull and crossbones, it's skull and candy canes. Yeah, that is cool. Why do I have such... I just bought wrapping paper the other day, and it's lame. <laughs> oh, man. Another one for me? This just keeps on giving here. <laughs> another one for me? And one for Jason. Thank you. And a card. Oh, it even says Merry Christmas <laughs> in Katakana. That's awesome. What does the note say? Hey, Jason Paul. Hopefully this package made it before Christmas. Thanks for another year of great podcast, and thanks for always listening to my crazy episode suggestions. In case you're wondering, the weird fabric wrapped with the candy are pocket handkerchiefs from the 100 yen store. Nice. In Iwakuni. Cool. Merry Christmas, Josh. And a picture of a tanuki with the giant balls <laughs> and a robot. <laughs> oh, that is awesome. That, those are great pictures. Yeah. Thanks so much, Josh. Yeah, thank this you. And Merry touching. Christmas. Let's open these up, see what we got here. Oh, yeah. Nice. We got some Japanese candy here. Melon candy, my favorite. Flower kiss candy. There we go. That sounds great. Mm. And mango. Very cool handkerchief here. I got a. I got some rabbits on mine. Finally, I have a classy hundred yen handkerchief. This is cool. Oh, I like high chew too. I love high chew so much. Yeah, you do. Oh wow! I was not expecting this. What's that? It's a Gundam. Oh, nice. <laughs> That's so cool. I have a little, I don't know, what do you even call these? Table tent? Yeah, table tent. Says, we do not offer alcohol to the drivers at all. Sorry, stop drink driving. <laughs> That's perfect for your little uh, whole bar here. Yeah, totally. Jason's got some nice bartending skills. Oh, I've even got to put it together. It's all the little pieces. That's so cool. That's that awesome. I got one too. Gundam Barbados Lupus. This is a cool one. Yeah, that looks awesome. So my last gift is something that uh, I didn't even know exists. Maybe <laughs> this is uh, one of those uniquely Japanese things. But uh, Josh, thank you for the package of men's panties. <laughs> so that was the one thing in the package that I actually had a clue about before we got it. 
So the context there is Josh had just listened to the Tokyo episode and yeah. you told that story about how you just for some reason had to pick up some underwear in Japan. <laughs> so Josh was like, oh, I'll send him some disposable Japanese underwear. That'll be fun. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I was curious about those. Like, This is even better because it's five of them. Oh, nice. Five? Do you get this in the dollar store? I don't know where they're from. Okay, I always wondered what like disposable underwear looked like or felt like. Like, how are they disposable? Those do look pretty flimsy. Yeah. Those aren't going to last you more than a wear or two. Yeah, okay. Um, I'll give it a shot. That's like, that's for the salary man that gets real drunk one night and has to stay at the capsule hotel. Yeah. And like, maybe yeah. kind of, he wants to change his underwear, but it's like emergency underwear <laughs> you, you know this is a this is a five pack you buy this and you stick it into your desk and like oh, you're yeah. set for any night that happens yep it looks like a like a cap a nurse would wear totally uh, like just shower with, like cap. two leg holes cut out <laughs> yeah that's type of material we're talking here <laughs> this is great yeah you know i always push my laundry day to the <laughs> max now, this is great. I can wear one of these, and I can wash every single piece of underwear I own, and then it's one longer, one more day until I got to do laundry. Yeah, that's your laundry day underwear. Now you're prepared. So thoughtful. Yeah. Thanks, Josh. That was That was really thoughtful. fun. That yeah. was really fun. Those, those are funny and thoughtful gifts, too. Definitely. Merry Christmas, Josh. Merry Christmas and happy holidays to all our listeners. Anyone a little newer to the podcast wondering about Japanese Christmas, we did an episode on it. Yeah. We had a Christmas episode, and then we did a New Year's episode Yep, a week later. So go back and check those out if you're curious how those are celebrated in Japan. Well, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, I don't have any pictures of Yakuza to post on Instagram, but if you want to see our other pictures, we are at SJP Podcast. You can also check out our website at sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. We have a contact form where you can reach out to us there. We have a donate page if you feel like uh, helping support the podcast. We would really appreciate that. Paul, what are we talking about next time? On the next episode, we're going to be talking about the Chugoku region, our last region in Japan. That's right. We will have covered the entire country. And this is definitely more of a obscure rural one for the most part, I think. Yeah, the big destination popular with tourists is probably Hiroshima. Yeah, and definitely on the Sea of Japan side, it, it gets much more rural and less people have been there or know about it, I think. Yeah, but there is some cool stuff up there. There is. It was really fun, again, doing the research on the places I don't know anything about mm -hmm. is, is much more fun. Totes. Well, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.